You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Berrettini. Here I interview neuroscientists and discuss their work as well as latest developments, issues, and controversies in the field of brain mapping. And today I have a truly inspiring chat with one of the OHBM 2021 keynote lecturers, Professor Nick Weisskopf. He's the director of the Department of Neurophysics at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Leipzig. He received his PhD in 2004 from the Graduate School of Neural and Behavioral Sciences and International Max Planck Research School uh, in Tübingen, Germany. And also in 2004, after he received his PhD, he moved to the Wellcome Trust Center for Neuroimaging at University College London, first as a senior research fellow, but quickly moving up to head the physics group. Finally, in 2014, he became full professor of MRI physics. However, in 2015, he was recruited uh, to this, this directorship position, uh, the directorship of the, the neurophysics department at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences. And this position is, uh, is a, we talk a little bit about the uniqueness of this position and uh, uniqueness of the Max Planck Society in general. So regarding the Department of Neurophysics, the vision is to develop and apply functional microstructure imaging and in vivo histology using magnetic resonance imaging as novel non-invasive MRI methods to reliably characterize detailed functional and anatomical microstructure of the human brain. And in this regard, he has been overwhelmingly successful so far, producing consistently pioneering work and defining and surpassing the limits of what structural and physiologic information MRI may derive from the brain. This was a unique podcast in that why I knew his work, I didn't really know him personally, and, and I realized that in a way we were kindred spirits. Uh, we're both physicists working at the interface of MRI acquisition and brain physiology and function. And we're trying our best to plumb ever more information, quantitative information about how our brains are organized and how they change with disease and how they vary among individuals. We talk about his professional history, get into uh, some talk about his past work with uh, real-time neural, uh, neural feedback MRI, uh, and then delve into his work on quantitative MRI for deriving maps of myelin, iron content, fiber track direction, and more, all at unprecedented resolutions using their unique connectome scanner, which is only one, uh, which is one of the only four in the world so far. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Nicholas Weisskopf, thanks for thanks for coming on to this uh, podcast. And um, you know, I, I've, I've been following your work for years, and uh, uh, it's it's nicely straddled uh, between basic MR physics fundamentals in MR physics and acquisition, all the way to neuroscience. So, so just to begin, how did you get started in this field? Uh, what what got you? I mean, at somewhere along the line, what what sort of piqued your interest in terms of um, 
uh, using MRI and using it as, as well as possible to extract functional information or physiologic information. Right. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for the very kind introduction, Peter. Uh, it's great, great pleasure and honor to be on, on the podcast. And um, yes, I, I mean, how, how did I get started with MRI? Um, basically, I, you know, I, I studied physics as my main topic. Um, and then I, I was looking for topics where you are quite close. First of all, you are studying something interesting and it was very clear to me that the brain is something truly, truly interesting. Um, we need where we need to put in a lot of thought and work to understand it. So that was clear. And I also wanted to work in, a, in an area where you get results rather quickly, where you're not so far away from results. And as you may, I mean, as we know in physics, you have sometimes these huge experiments like in CERN or in other places where you really have to work for years before you get the first results. And, and when I saw kind of in general, the neuroscience area domain, neuroimaging domain, I, I thought that that's a really interesting area because you, you can get quickly results. You can really advance understanding still rather quickly because I, I think it's still relatively early science. Um, so, so I really liked working there. And, and as a physicist, I had the feeling I can really bring some, you know, some skills, some knowledge to the table. Um, and incidentally, I actually didn't start with MRI. I, I started with magnetoencephalography with MEG at the time and um, working in, in a rather exotic top on a rather exotic topic. It was uh, measuring DC fields, DC, uh, so very slowly varying fields at the time. And, and this had to do actually with, with my latest supervisor then, um, because um, Niels Bierbaumer in Tübingen, um, who worked a lot on brain-computer interfacing. And at the time, they were based on slowly varying fields, uh, for example, slow cortical potentials, SCPs. And, and so there was a general interest in, uh, in, in, in the community there. Um, and then after... After I'd worked with MEG, I mean, I, I already during that period of time, I got in touch with a lot of uh, colleagues who actually worked in the MRI domain in Tübingen. I mean, it's a big place. A lot of people like Wolfgang Roth, for example, at the time had, had already done F functional MRI for a long time. And I got really fascinated by that. And, and then basically Niels Bierbaumer approached me at, at one point and said, look, um, you're a physicist, you know, you, you are the smart guys who can program these scanners and work with those. And, and I have this long-standing problem that I, I've, uh, I'm working with these brain-computer interfaces with neurofeedback. And, and the problem is with the EEG, and they were EEG-based, the problem is we can't really see deep in inside the brain, the deep brain areas. And, and Niels was very much interested in, in, you know, the amygdala and other deeper brain areas. And they were incredibly hard to, to, to sense with EHG at the time. So he, he had this idea, he had heard about real-time fMRI, maybe, maybe one could build a brain computer, brain computer interface with that and, and do neurofeedback with that. And, and that's how, how I came in because then I thought, okay, this is interesting uh, because on the one hand, I'm going to learn about the brain. On the other hand, I'm actually going to apply my skills as a physicist really well. And, 
And I think I was extremely lucky at the time that I, I had a, a great thesis advisory committee with Niels Bierbaumer, with Klaus Matiak and Uwe Klose. So a nice mixture of you know, uh, physicians, psychologists, physicists also in, in, in this advisory board, uh, thesis advisory committee. And did you overlap? I mean, I, I guess when you were in Tübingen, it's, uh, uh, I've been there uh, twice. Uh, uh, Logothetis was there at least. And uh, uh, I don't know if, you know, that was, it's, yep. was, it's a great center. And, uh, and certainly they have the, uh, and I didn't know that you were actually started in MEG as well. That's interesting. Um, uh, and, and I noticed actually you do, you've done a little bit of MEG just recently trying to look at the correlation uh, uh, fiber orientation and, and, and iron content with uh, the MEG single. But so as, as far as um, now, uh, uh, and I, I recall, you know, obviously uh, you know, Bob Turner was in charge of the, uh, uh, the, the director um, of the uh, Department of Neurophysics at the Max Planck Institute in, in Leipzig. And he finally, he retired. Um, uh, although luckily not completely, he's still sort of active. And uh, I was sort of aware of that position opening and, and it's a big deal. Uh, and I actually was impressed with, it's not just, you know, hiring someone to be, you know, in, in the States, for instance, being a, you know, a professor or assistant professor or whatever. It's like, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a really, it's the Max Planck, I, I like to think is, is something like the NIH where you have permanent positions and you have hard money and you have um, a, a group. Uh, but in this, in this particular position, it actually is even, it's, it's more significant. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, your position and, uh, uh, what it entails? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, as you said, I, I, I think kind of working in the Max Planck Society in general, but um, in particular, of course, when, when you direct uh, one of the departments, um, I, I think it is very special indeed in, in terms of, um, I think one, one of the things that is special that it's a society that is targeting basic research, fundamental research. So, you know, you, you can really dig deep, you can try to kind of crack really the hard problems and, and you're given uh, the, the, the time and uh, the resources to actually do that. Uh, so I, I think that's rather special and, and that applies to, I, I would say, every level in the Max Planck Society. And, and what it also means is um, that typically also have pretty unique facilities. So I think we are very lucky here. We, we have, for example, a seven test MRI scanner to do high resolution, ultra high resolution functional MRI. Um, for example, the laminar fMRI as you do it as well. Um, and uh, we also have uh, one of the four connectome MRI systems. So we can do uh, with a very strong gradient system. So we can get excellent diffusion imaging, for example, acquired here. Um, and, but I think what, what counts more than the facilities is really that mindset you can rely on and, and um, you get support from everybody. And uh, I, I would say um, even from the administrative groups, you get this support. They ask you questions about how they can support your science and how, how they can kind of um, speed it up or expedite it. So, so uh, I, I think that's a, a really, really special uh, place to be. Yeah, no, that's, um, and, and I, I agree with you 100%. It's, it's, it seems that, you know, there's pluses and minuses each system, but uh, certainly the, you know, the right now, the system of, you know, the extramural world, at least in the, in the United States and, and, and elsewhere in Europe as well, is, 
you know, people are scrambling for grants and, they, and they're constantly writing grants, which does, I think, keep people sharp in, in terms of always trying to find the most uh, interesting thing to, to get funded. Most of the time they're not funded and, and sometimes it's, they go for short-term uh, problems in some regard too. So there's, there's always these trade-offs as far as that system uh, at the NIH and Max Planck. And it seems definitely uh, at Max Planck is where, right, you can, uh, you know, you're given the resources and you, they only give this to people that are, you know, extremely motivated and extremely focused on, on the problem. Uh, and, and yeah, and, and I think that really does help in, in many ways, having this stability uh, to, and, and the resources to sort of, you know, step back and take a deep breath and actually think carefully uh, um, in terms of uh, what to do. So that's great. So what was it like? Um, uh, you know, I know Bob Turner sort of was there initially. He, he may have coined the term no, neurophysics, which I really like. Um, uh, uh, but but what, what was it like? Uh, how, how have you changed the department uh, or, or kept it the same uh, um, after, after Bob left? Uh, mm -hmm. It's a, it's a good question. Um, I, I mean, in, in terms of the philosophy of the Max Planck Society, uh, when a director leaves, so for, uh, for example, you, you're emeritus director, uh, you retire, then they close the department. And, and that was the case here as well in Leipzig. So the department was closed. So I basically came in and, and opened it up again, you know, turned the key, opened it up again. And there was uh, quite, what comes with it is obviously uh, the typical, you know, staff starting ramping up the activities aspects. Um, at the time, what came in at the same time was, for example, the Connectome MRI scanner. So that was kind of significant amount of work to, to really uh, bring this up and running and, and, uh, and make the best use of it, for example. So, so that was certainly a new aspect coming in, in terms of the facilities. Um, in terms of uh, the, the department itself, I, I think one, one of the things I've, I kind of uh, try to really take on board in, in terms of the mission of the department, you know, the approach is um, kind of this, the idea that you, you, you pursue kind of three pillars there, three, three directions. And, and one of them is this classic, let's say, MR physics uh, approach. You, 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 you try to maybe improve the signal to noise by going to higher fields. You, you work with new RF calls. You create new pulse sequences, image reconstruction, all these kind of things. On the other hand, uh, we really took to heart and very seriously the biophysical modeling. So this is uh, one of the kind of really important foundations of our work now. And I should actually just mention uh, briefly what, what, our, what one of the big goals is of our work is uh, to identify microstructure non-invasively to do something like in vivo histology, get information about microstructure similar to histology, but non-invasively using MRI. And, and for that, the biophysical models play a big role because they help us interpret the data, the image processing. So basically all the computing. So I've ramped up the computing actually quite, quite a bit. Uh, we have also close collaboration with the high computing High Performance Computing Center of the Max Planck Society in Munich. So we are in Leipzig and there's another part in Munich, for example, and they have these 
big computers basically for, for processing simulation. And the last part, the third part is really doing the neuroscience, kind of this proof of concept studies, smaller, you know, experimental studies to make a point, to validate things, um, and also postmortem studies for validation. So I, I think what is kind of what I, I see kind of the unique package is bringing these three things really closely together. And very often this means there are persons who work on more than one of those areas. So they work in between interdisciplinary and we have a lot of external collaborators. And I think this is kind of a special flavor when you ask, you know, what, what makes you, what, what's an aspect of your department that is maybe different from, from other places or other sites um, in that regard. And maybe I should also mention this when I said microstructure imaging, overall, what we are obviously very interested in is um, this entire loop of how function relates to structure, to microstructure, to behavior. Um, we are interested in that in the entire institute, but also in our department. And so we also do a lot of um, ultra high resolution functional imaging, for example, looking at columns, at layers and so on. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful setup. And, and I think that you've, Right, over the last few years, just getting that started. Yeah, it's really nice. The nice thing about MRI is that it is, uh, it, it's not just sort of this technique that you that you, you know, press a button and get whatever image you get. You There's so much, many parameters that you can adjust and there's so many opportunities for potential clinical applications or, or understanding the brain in a fundamental way uh, that, uh, that makes it so rich. Um, you mentioned your connectome scanner, and I think that it's important to emphasize uh, how unique that is as well. I think, um, you know, I think there's only three or at the most three or four maybe uh, in the four world. Four altogether now. Yeah. Okay. And and maybe just describe a little bit how, you know, because your your images actually that we'll talk about are, are spectacular and, and how that really does uh, allow you to do a lot more. Sure, I'd love to. <laughs> Um, I think it's a, a fantastic scanner. I mean, and, and, and in particular for diffusion imaging and um, probably a lot of people will know, but uh, what you need for uh, diffusion sensitization and encoding in MRI, you need gradients, you need strong gradients ideally, because that makes the, the time you need for diffusion encoding shorter. The stronger the gradients, the shorter the encoding time, and you still have basically the same diffusion rating. And, and that's how we kind of use it mainly at our site is basically playing out these very strong gradients and to give you a number. I mean, the typical standard scanners, they are now somewhere between, let's say, 40 to 80 millitesla per meter gradient amplitude. The connectome has a 300 millitesla per meter uh, gradient amplitude. And uh, the effect of the gradient amplitude on the diffusion weighting goes in with the square of the amplitude. So you really gain a lot of diffusion weighting. And, and shortening that diffusion sensitization time means, for example, you have much shorter echo times in, in your MR acquisitions. And as we know, when you shorten the echo times, the signal goes up. You have much more signal left, signal to noise is higher. And since most of our MRI techniques are actually SNR signal to noise limited, what it means we can immediately trade it off for resolution, for example. We can make the voxel sizes smaller and uh, resolve more interesting structures. And, and, that's, um, and that's probably one, one direction where we 
maybe now not differ so much anymore from, from other groups, but initially we differed quite a lot from other groups in a sense that we were interested in diffusion in the cortex and just underneath the cortex. So like the superficial white matter, U-fibers and, and also intracortical diffusion features. And uh, we used that high resolution to actually be able to, to make, get meaningful images, which you can analyze at that level. And for that, you need about at least one millimeter resolution, isotropic resolution or higher. And um, so we, we are now at 800 micrometer isotropic resolution, which we use for, for our kind of proof of concept neuroscience studies, for example. That's actually another thing about MRI too, is that with the methods keep on, I mean, you know, it's been the field is almost you know, 40 years old and the methods keep on improving with the engineering and, and then that fosters new physics insights and new physiology insights and, and new techniques as well. So it keeps on growing as far as that's concerned. This, and definitely one of the areas where the cutting edge is, is, you know, these connectome scanners that, you know, we're hoping to eventually get something like that as well. Uh, um, so before we get into, you know, what you're, what you talk, what you're talking about at OHBM uh, for the most part, uh, I just want to talk a little bit, you know, I first, uh, became aware of your work uh, in the context of sort of real-time fMRI and the idea of using fMRI, uh, uh, real-time fMRI, where you, you process the functional images in real-time and then feed it back to the subject uh, to allow for uh, training or, or other types of feedback as well. And you had some really nice papers. You had a Nature Reviews Neuroscience paper in 2016, so it's not that long ago. Uh, you've you know, collaborated with a number of people and, and you, you did this even when you were at UCLs uh, as well, I think for the, for the most part. Uh, and just even recently, you have a real-time decoding of covert attention uh, uh, visual areas. So my feeling about real-time is that uh, it's, it's, it's obviously really interesting um, and people would love to use it clinically as like a therapy tool. Um, uh, I, I worry a little bit about the because you're relying on a hemodynamic response, that delay, uh, I, I, I worry a little bit that it's almost too long to actually foster to be as efficient as, for instance, MEG or, or that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually uh, curious about your take on, on real-time fMRI and if you're doing it or if you're still thinking about it and what you think the limits are or the uh, ultimate uh, applications of it might be. Sort of a loaded question, but uh... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite, quite, quite a, a few things maybe to, to unpack there. Um, yeah. And certainly also, I, I would say, probably not without controversy in, in, yeah. the, in the community and field that, that dif different opinions on it. Um, maybe, maybe uh, coming back to your comment on the HRF and, and you know, the, the fact that we have, we are working with indirect measurements of brain activity in, in this case, and a bit sluggish, the responses. And so the anecdote would be that when we started the neurofeedback work, we were actually rather surprised. Uh, so using the bold signal, we were rather surprised it works rather well. And uh, because exactly of that, because we, before that, Niels did all the EEG neurofeedback work and all that was established and there were all kinds of paradigms and people believed that you need this fast response and you need to measure that. And, um, and I, I think this is still not completely clear, but I, I would probably think, 
there are a few reasons for it. One is maybe signal-to-noise again. That signal-to-noise can be rather, rather good in bold imaging, especially when you look at larger regions of interest. And that really helps people to learn when they get reliable feedback, for example. That's not necessarily always the case, at least at that time with EEG. I mean, this has also, of course, made, made big advances now in the meantime. Um, I definitely have to add, yeah, definitely the, the fidelity of the signal is a strong point with bold relative to like, right, MEG or EEG. It's a little bit, like you said, it's, it's a little bit more, it's getting better, but it's, but that was a, that's a key advantage. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry. Yeah, uh, sure. No, no, of course. Uh, and, and the other aspect, and it's, it's kind of related to this fact that you have this slow responses that you would run different types of paradigms and you would probably target different kinds of, let's say, cognitive processes perhaps um, that are slower intrinsically and that don't really benefit so much from the high temporal resolution. So when you think about, for example, colleagues who have done work on emotion induction or some, something like that there, it, it even turned out, you know, in practice that you were almost too fast, that people had trouble switching the context quickly enough. Even in a block design, they had trouble to do this, to, to unthink the, uh, certain things, for example, and, and, and switch to, to another condition. Like if, if you think about it, for example, if you try to switch from, let's say, feeling happy to feeling sad and back, I mean, then it's quite obvious that this is by no yeah. means trivial. And there, there, I think it might also help actually. So with the right paradigms and the right questions, you, you benefit. And that's another really interesting point uh, or, or question there, bigger one is the type of signal you feed back. For, for example, there you often fed back signals from regions of interest initially, yeah. and you averaged across those. And if you, if you choose them right, well, you know, then, then they might be more con compatible with the kind of uh, uh, changes you try to achieve. I mean, let, let me give an example. If you... Uh, record signal directly from the motor cortex and you have localized it really well beforehand, then you really get the signal from that functional area that is relevant. So if you do then, for example, some type of motor training with a neurofeedback, maybe maybe some motor imagery, then you, you, you get a, a very specific high SNR signal. If you do this with MEG, you still have this problem to disentangle it and so on. Same is true for deeper brain areas. So I think the spatial specificity also helps you to kind of give you a more precise signal in the end. And then last but not least is the work by Mitsuo Kawatu, I think a lot of people will be aware of, uh, is kind of, he was the first one to use these decoders in, in a real-time situation. So to now uh, train subjects to, to, to actually achieve certain classification results um, and even, even things they weren't aware of, so to say. Um, there was this famous uh, science paper he had, he had on this topic, um, yes. the, the DECNEF. And, and I think, again, this shows there it's not a region of interest, but it's the relevant um, neuronal structure you train because it's been Basically, it's been trained by the classifier, which has been trained based on the relevant neuronal signals. So I, I think these kind of things help, despite having kind of the disadvantage of a slower signal, maybe less precise signal. You know, so uh, what you lose in terms of this temporal fidelity, you I think gain in terms of fidelity in other domains. Um, so, so I think. I, yeah, I think you've hit it on the head in terms of even 
not only looking at you know a region of interest, but also looking at, like you said, with multivariate classifiers, looking at the, the multivoxel pattern and, 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 and you try to sort of change some aspect of that. And, and in one of your papers, you actually thought you, you, you showed that looking at connectivity as opposed to magnitude seems to be a, 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 a better training signal as well. I mean, looking at uh, you know, the connectivity between regions, which is sort of a, a form of looking at multivariate uh, uh, signal as well. So, and that's interesting why necessarily maybe connectivity uh, as, it's, as it's assessed with MRI might be more, I mean, I think that this is exactly the cutting, the, the, the edge of what we understand or don't understand. This is what's fun about doing this is that you're, you're exploring these signals and you're trying to figure out what is most relevant and what's most, you know, you know able to be used to train as well. So mm -hmm. uh, you also mentioned that uh, the training effect, let's say somebody is, uh, you know, trying to um, uh, use neurofeedback to reduce anxiety or something like that. Or some people are trying to do post-traumatic stress, you know, reduce the musing amygdala. So you mentioned in one of your papers that, that the effect lasts about at least 20 minutes, but some people even argue, I mean, there's some, there were some early, I would even argue maybe false starts. Um, uh, DeCharms had an early paper about pain mitigation. He said, you know, he suggested that it lasted up to six months. Is what, what do you think uh, of the efficacy and the length of time that this training effect, uh, maybe it's maybe it accumulates over time if you keep on doing it, but I don't know, what's your insight on that? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're really asking the, the big and the tough questions, I must say. <laughs> um, but I think they're really, they are the crucial ones, to be honest. I mean, these are the, the really big ones. And, and I, I think they really go, go back, you know, they go far beyond uh, neurofeedback and the neurofeedback designs. And it, it was certainly something that has been puzzling us for a long time. And, and I think the story is, in my opinion, it's probably rather complicated. So first of all, short answer is, yes, I believe that there are long-term effects and that they are lasting and even on top of it, they might even get bigger over time. And now this is really puzzling. And, and you know, there's some indications in some of the kind of clinical trials we had in the, we had this big EU consortium uh, uh, network uh, called BrainTrain, um, where, where people did kind of early clinical studies using real-time FMI and neurofeedback. And, and they saw these kind of effects that funnily, effect size seemed to almost go up rather than go down, even though the training wasn't performed anymore, or the neurofeedback training wasn't performed anymore. And I think this has a lot to do with the fact that we don't understand plasticity and learning properly yet. But one thing we know is, for example, what matters is sleep. So how you, for example, structure your sessions, if you have them all on one day or on several days, and, and what gaps you leave in between actually matters. So it's not only the dose. So there's a lot of talk about how much dose of neurofeedback do you need, but probably placing the dose strategically plays as big a role as the dose itself. Um, so I, I think it really goes back to, to general training and learning paradigms, not, not only related to using now the uh, bolt signal and, and your own brain signal for, for uh, training and learning. And um, 
what what makes it really hard of course to to understand and study it is simply the fact that these are really extensive studies i, I think sometimes people forget this but when people talk about for example eight sessions of neurofeedback it often means they've actually put a single person um eight times for one hour into the scanner and and did this experiment and then you might have some results and if you now try to work out all these parameters you basically do this maybe 10 times and then you have done one subject and you want to do your 20 it actually becomes a tremendously large study in the end but these are really interesting questions and maybe to add one one more point to it is i think what would be also fascinating is to combine it with other approaches when you think about uh, learning so perhaps pharmacological interventions, perhaps also, I mean, there are beautiful brain stimulation techniques out there now. And, and I, I don't see them as mutually exclusive, rather than maybe a, a nice, you know, productive combination might actually give, give us the best, the, the quickest learning effects. I mean, perhaps combining it with TDCS or something like that. Yeah, no, and, and ultimately, hopefully, I mean, I think that it's close to being, Something, I mean, I always mentioned in terms of F clinical applications of fMRI, this is something that could be a different type of thing where it's therapy um, that has real impact uh, in that regard. Uh, I've seen nothing but mostly positive results. And so, and, and you're right, with, with multimodal integration, there's so much more that could be done. So. Yeah. Maybe when, when you, uh, if I may uh, comment on that regarding therapies, I think that I would see two advantages. I mean, as as far as we know now, it looks like, you know, there are no, let's say, severe side effects of neurofeedback training. So I, I think that's one plus when you compare to other therapies often in, let's say, in the neurological psychiatric domain. And the other thing I, I think which most volunteers comment on, on also patients is this kind of a, a feeling of self-efficacy, I think is quite important as well. I mean, it's you yourself who actually does or learns that. And, and I, I think these are two really positive aspects about the neurofeedback approach one, one shouldn't forget about. Yeah, yeah, I, I, completely, I completely agree with that. And, and I, I think people quickly say, oh, it's just another form of biofeedback. Biofeedback really is just looking at, you know, skin conductance or things like that as, as feedback, but this is actually looking at the brain processes. So it's so much more, has so much more potential for being uh, targeted and, 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 and yeah, effective. So great. Fully well, agree. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope you uh, at least uh, continue working on that uh, area to some to some degree. I think that your work has been really, really helpful to the field. So now, now uh, to talk about things that that are that you've been focusing on uh, in the context of of the talk that you gave, um, using MRI to probe microstructure, and uh, so it seems that over the years, uh, obviously, I mean, people have found that MRI is sensitive to you know all kinds of things, uh, white matter, gray matter, um, susceptibility, perfusion. Uh, and uh, now with diffusion, you know, you can look at fiber tracks and directionality. Um, but I think that, and, and I think that what you're doing and, and, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong, I think that first of all, MRI could be more quantitative. And then secondly, there's an abundance of physiologic information at the, at the cellular level uh, that still is relatively untapped or even not understood exactly how it affects the MR signal. Like John Gore uh, recently gave a, a really nice Lauderdale lecture at ISMRM, uh, sort of suggesting this, that you know we're using MRI for so many years and we still don't know exactly what causes 
T1? Um, what are the physiologic and, and biophysical mechanisms? Um, so, so what is, so, so I like how you framed your talk. I, I, I was privy to the slides. And so uh, uh, thank you for sending them. Uh, and so what would you say, so what is a, uh, a cytoarchitectonic atlas? And, and, and what is known uh, uh, about myeloarchitecture? Uh, so um, I, I guess we'll come back to this question about uh, uh, how, how quantitative MI is and, and what you can extract from the signals. But what I wanted to say maybe uh, just right away, I also believe that there's much more in the signal uh, we can exploit, but we also need to understand, I, I think. Um, and in, in terms of... What, what can you potentially get out from MI? I think what is really attractive for us is uh, in, in the domain of neuroimaging and neurosciences, uh, we can, for example, use it to revisit some of the older uh, anatomy. So mainly, I, I call it maybe the macroscopic anatomy people have done, or mesoscopic one around, you know, 1990 up to 1920s, 30s mainly, like, um, Vogt and Vogt, uh, Flexig, uh, Corbini and Broadman, for example. I mean, a lot of people are aware of these atlases and, and, and that work. And, and I think we now really have the chance to get there uh, in vivo, to get similar maps out. I mean, we are not there yet, to be very clear, but uh, you know, there is this chance. And I think if we push hard enough, we can probably get pretty close to that um, with MI non-invasively. And then, of course, you have, you have many more options. And and why? I mean, why are we interested in those atlases? I think there are many reasons, but one important reason is that we also by now understand. Uh, that these parcellations based on cytoarchitecture, cytoarchitecture means what type of cells you have where in the cortex and what are the densities, what are the cell sizes. I think the big brain project is a nice example for that. We, we know that the, the, those parcellations, they're also meaningful in terms of function. So you can distinguish, for example, primary motor cortex from primary somatosensory cortex based on their cytoarchitecture and based on their myeloarchitecture, which would be basically the, the, the fiber structure, the myelinated fiber structure in the cortex, where you also find a lot of myelinated fibers. And, and incidentally, actually, when you count the number of fibers, uh, most of them are actually in the cortex. These are the short ones, not the long ones you have in the deep white matter. Uh, I think some a lot of people are not aware of that. So they're really important for the connectivity of the brain. And so it's really interesting for parcellation. And, um, and in a sense, why is it important for function? Because it supports probably certain certain functional um, input or output better than, than other um, anatomical structures. And so in a sense, it even goes beyond just uh, delineating and parcelating certain areas from others, but maybe also kind of understanding better how these, how each area works when you have access to to the Milo architecture and the cytoarchitecture precisely in vivo. Yeah, it just occurred to me, um, you know, one of the huge uh, limits in, in in high resolution fMRI. So we're trying to look at layer fMRI, and it's just simply that we don't, you know, you know, the idea is that you're based on sort of our electrophysiology literature that you know, upper layers maybe send output, uh, lower layers have input. And, and that's just based on electrophysiology. But if, if right, I mean, it, yeah, it just occurred to me that if you could actually use uh, Milo and cytoarchitecture information using MRI to characterize this, you, you immediately have uh, the output input you know, structure across the cortical sheath in that, that regard to inform 
the fMRI signals. So that would be really incredibly useful. <laughs> That's just yep. one example, but yeah. <laughs> and then, and you could uh, you could also um, um, present it like this. You know, ask yourself. Often we use literature information to inform modeling. This could be maybe neuronal mass models, like really formal, you know, mathematical models. This could be maybe even cognitive models. So you go back to the literature. And what is typically the literature? It's the, if we are lucky, it's the mean of the population. Often it's the mean of a very, very special population we look at effectively. And then we take this and we kind of almost pretend as if this applies to your completely different group you have scanned now, for example, with functional MRI. But if you could take the same group and actually identify their individual properties, yes. wouldn't it be much more accurate, much better what you get out? I mean, this is a claim, but, but I would be quite optimistic that that's the case. If we wouldn't need to go back to the literature values, but we can actually do this in the individual in every study we, we perform. Yes. Yeah. And, and not only for understanding individual variation, but of course, you know, using clinically, you need to have that individual information to, to sort of assess the subtlety right. of some of the pathology. Um, yeah. So let's talk maybe a little bit about uh, your approach. Uh, so starting out, you, uh, you know, the idea is that you have, you know, MRI has many different weightings and typically clinically you use T1 weighted and tumors show up and clinicians can interpret this, but uh, when you really want to compare across scanners and you and you actually want to get information that's more stable and maybe more relevant to what's actually going on, you need quantitative maps. So how do you go from your weightings to quantitation? And what do you end up quantitating then finally, uh, as far as that's concerned? Um, mm -hmm. and, and not to go into, obviously, there's many, many, many details in terms of how you synthesize the, you know, how you do the calculations, but um, but just generally. Yeah. So I, I, I take kind of a bird's eye view on it. As you said, I mean, the, the quantitative MI is, is a big field of research and has been actually for, for decades now. And people have been trying this for a long time. But I think what is special is now that we are in, at a time point where uh, the, the just the MRI scanners got so much better, the technique, so it makes the quantitational uh, quantifying uh, values also much easier. So what, what do we mean by that? I mean, typically when you look at, let's say a T1 weighted image, you, ha you have this issue that uh, let's say, Peter, I, I would scan you at the NIH and then I would bring you over to Leipzig, you know, and we would scan you here on a 70 system. And then we would put the two images next to each other. And even if we ran the protocol with the same parameters, we would probably get different numbers out, so to say. So the numbers, the signal intensities are not really meaningful. The differences might be the contrast, but the numbers themselves not. And, and quantifying it is not so unusual when you think about normal science. I mean, standard science would always try to quantify. You always have a metric coming with that, an absolute value you would calibrate. So you would make sure that, for example, your thermometer gives you the same, te uh, uh, the same temperature independent of where you use it, for example, or if it's an electric one or a a mercury thermometer, right? And so that's the fundamental idea. We want to get the same numbers out. And how do we do this? And that's also similar to other, let's say, areas of physics. Often it means calibration, something like that, some additional scan. So you might get your T1 weighted scan. Let's say we, let's say we look at a T1 
quantitative map versus a T1-weighted scan. Then a T1-weighted scan is usually one acquisition. A T1 map usually relies on, let's say, at least two acquisitions with slightly different parameters I've used, slightly different protocols, and maybe a, an additional reference scan. And then what I can do is I can kind of solve an equation to get the T1 out and, and you solve for T1. And, and that is then independent of the exact protocol setup I have used for acquiring these two protocols. As long as I know the parameters of the protocols, um, I'm fine. I can estimate T1 from that. And, and that should be the same at different places. Of course, details matter, but, but the fundamental idea is that it's comparable then, or much better comparable across time points and, and sites. Yes. And, and in, a, in, in a sense, you could maybe another viewpoint might be also, and that's a bit more geeky, in a, in a sense, but um, when you when you go back and you think about you know what what are the fundamentals, again the simple ones in uh, MR physics, it's the so-called Bloch equations we use and uh, these phenomenological equations that describe the signal. And what you do is, um, in a sense, you get a lot of lot of different signals, and then you fit the Bloch equations, and they have the parameters. T1 in there, T2, for example, in there, and you get those out. So it becomes kind of an inversion or fitting problem in the end, the quantitative imaging. And typically we would extract these physical parameters like relaxation times or maybe magnetization transfer uh, rates. Yeah, and, and, and that's a wonderful overview. And, and, and the parameters you get out, right, you get like things like proton density, you get T1, T2, T2 star, uh, uh, um, magnetization transfer, as I mentioned. Um, and, and from that, then, you can then infer uh, things like uh, the amount of myelin, uh, the fiber track directions, uh, the amount of iron, which I'm still curious about. Uh, and I, we can maybe talk a little bit about that, uh, uh, you know, uh, separating blood iron from tissue iron. And, and actually, even more interestingly, I've seen a lot of work, including your own, sort of looking at uh, uh, using what's called like a, a, a G ratio to, to get at you know, the size of the cells or uh, some people actually even, even um, uh, uh, Peter Basser here at the NIH is trying to look at neuron uh, size. And uh, who knows, we might be able to get neural density. I would love to have neural density maps uh, potentially, I mean, more calibration potentially. But so, so as far as collecting this information, quantitating it, reduces the variability across scanners. Just before I go on with that, I just want to ask, uh, so I noticed that, I mean, still there's variability um, and it might just simply be in the signal-to- noise across scanners in terms of how you uh, fit these equations. And so it doesn't eliminate it, it just reduces it substantially. That's, uh, um, so with myelin mapping, um, just to put it in context, uh, you know, myelin is, and I, I have, I, I've, I've been learning a lot about myelin uh, as far as uh, um, uh, uh, you know, how it's relevant. And I always thought myelin you know, was, was always there and it's always just simply to make the neuron signal go faster. Uh, uh, it's for you know, it's more efficient uh, transfer, but it seems that, you know, and you've been using, uh, making myelin maps, uh, the starting with the myelin maps and, uh, and they're really, they're really fascinating because they, the, Areas that show high myelination are, to me, counterintuitive. Of course, you have the myelin in uh, the tracks, but then, but then you have primary visual, primary motor 
that show this massive amount of myelination. So, so do, why is that? And and how do you so how do you get the maps? And and why do you think? Uh, how is the myelination different than what we understand? And, and maybe why is why is that the case? <laughs> <laughs> okay, all, all right. right. You, 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 might, you might have to remind me. And, uh... <laughs> some of the questions. So I, I'll, tr I'll try to, to walk through it. So how, how do we get the maps? Um, so I, I, I think in, in terms of understanding how, how it probably helps to think about it is now we have these quantitative parameters, physical parameters, and what we try to extract from those are biological parameters now. And that's what we would call then the in vivo histology, for example, using MI. So there's another crucial step here. It's going from kind of the simple model Bloch equations, which are true and, and nicely applicable in water, you know, in a simple model system into this really complex brain tissue where all kinds of things are happening, multiple compartments. I mean, it's a real headache when you try to model it. So that's the big challenge. We try our best and as a community, I should say this, a lot of people are active in this field. Um, and so what we are trying to do is build parsimonious models of tissue to explain uh, then, for example, you have, might have different compartments. You might have heard about, let's say, the myelin water compartment where you have my, uh, water near my, myelin sheets, for example, which has different characteristics because it's got a different mobility from the kind of free water that might be the extracellular water not close to any membranes. And, and there are many other models in, in there. You've mentioned chi ratio, which relies on certain diffusion models. And so fundamentally, we build these models now. And, and we take the quantitative parameters, sometimes the weighted images, to estimate then these biological parameters. And again, it's this inversion problem. And, and you mentioned this uh, briefly, that uh, one, one aspect is that we really try to get as many different images and contrasts as possible, because that makes the inversion simpler. I mean, uh, simply speaking, you know, the more information you have about the underlying microstructure from different viewpoints helps you to estimate the microstructure. So that's kind of, again, bird's eye view on it, uh, what we try to do. And we really try, ideally, our best models are the ones that work up initio. So that means really there are no free parameters you fit, you know, just natural cons uh, constants in there. And, and the rest of it is physics, biophysics, and, and you build the model. But that's really, really hard. Um, so now for the coming to the uh, myelin mapping. So there are actually there are different approaches towards that. The one we use uh, relies very much on T1, measuring T1 and R1. And that's a very very simplified model of the signal. And, and, but still, it works amazingly well, in particular in the cortex. Um, it seems that there's a high correlation simply between the R1 value, so this quantitative uh, measurement, and the myelination. Um, and, and that's what we exploit. And, and why do we use this, let's say, simpler approach? Is simply because it's fast. And that means we can get very high resolution. And that means, you know, we can actually look at the cortex and the interesting structures in the cortex, because with too big, bigger voxel, you don't see anything in the cortex. So that's where we are coming from. And um, now the question I think you, you were asking is, why does it look like that, the myelo <laughs> architecture? And, and that's, uh, I mean, this, of course, one of the fundamental questions, right? <laughs> in neuroscience, why, why like that? Why does it look like that? And 
I, I could cheat a little bit and say, well, we know that it's highly related to cytoarchitecture, and it's because the cytoarchitecture is different between those brain areas. Yeah. But that just shifts the question, right? <laughs> so, so, but but in a sense, what I'm what I'm trying to say, there are obviously different cell types. For example, if you if you think about the motor cortex, you have these giant bed cells for for you know driving the motor output basically, and so one could see that it's probably related to you have certain cells and certain structures and also connectivity structures you need to support the function again, in, in my opinion. And, and that leads to different levels of myelination. And in the visual cortex, this might be, you know, you have these collaterals that probably have to kind of effect effectively connect things. And, and maybe one comment, uh, because you, you said you looked at myelin a lot and what the meaning. Um, uh, so it's certainly there to to speed up uh, uh, or increase the con conductance velocity. But I think there are so many other uh, uh, kind of uh, uses of myelin in the brain. And probably one important one is stability of your, of your system. What is myelinated doesn't change so quickly anymore. So if it's really kind of well-learned, it's probably getting myelinated. And that makes it really an interesting plasticity marker, for example, or, or development marker. Yes. I, I read in the literature about how, right, myelination might change with learning and uh, and certainly, but also at the same time, prefrontal cortex, which which maybe intrinsically can't be um, uh, too, too fixed, it, you know, is less myelinated, uh, but right. I mean, uh, it also seems like myelination is, you know, I've, I've been talking to people that suggest that it's, you know, in, in indication of cardiovascular health or just general health. And, mm. and, and you also suggest it's, it, it's a, you know, uh, in terms of aging, uh, you know, you have myelination uh, decreases in a very distinct pattern in the brain that with, as people get older as well. So um, yeah, I, and, and this is actually the, the perfect thing about the wonderful thing about MRI is that you, you open up for the first time, we're able to sort of map this, this thing, uh, myelination. And I, and I was curious, right. That other people try to use, the ratio of T1 to T2 or, and they all seem to converge pretty well. And, and people would argue that we're just looking at, you know, water around myelin, but not myelin directly. But even when you compare it directly to the myelin maps uh, that are attained other ways, it's pretty close. It's really close. Um, so, so yeah. So have you been thinking about using just simply, I mean, I know you, you've done it with aging, but have you been trying to do like, for instance, even the context of real time, uh, neurofeedback. I mean, it, it, trying to look at myelination changes. I mean, yeah, certainly cortical changes have been observed. It's not clear whether that's wrapped into myelination. Have you been looking at, you know, thinking about myelination as a as an indicator of plasticity? Absolutely, yes, um, indeed, and and also in the context of the neurofeedback experiments. So, in some of them, we we actually start or have started acquiring. Um, these kind of multi-parameter mapping techniques for, for mapping maybe myelination and, and also what is related is kind of iron concentration. And, and I think there's some evidence that there are actual anatomical changes due to the neurofeedback uh, training as well in, in, in connected regions. That's kind of what, what we've seen, at least anecdotally, I, I would say. Um, and not necessarily exactly the region you, you train, but it might be the one that is connected to it, which, which is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. If you think about kind of motor basal cortical uh, loops, for example, so this motor loops. Um, 
one thing I would really like to bring together and, and um, is this aspect of the, the microstructural imaging with uh, training and the functional training, for example. So I think neurofeedback is a really interesting paradigm again at this point, because you can so selectively train something yes. in the brain. So, with a, so, so it's intrinsically quite well controlled. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a that's a really good point because usually when you're training, like for instance, I was always surprised with, you know, the uh, you know, early on people did a juggling task, and and for some reason, MT uh, uh, medial temporal areas showed yeah. changes, and yeah. nobody understood exactly exactly why. Uh, but in terms of neurofeedback, you could actually say, change. We're going to measure these based on the feedback. You're going to change the activity, and um, and then now you can directly look at myelination. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, maybe let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, uh, iron mapping. Iron mapping is also something that just sort of emerged a lot more, a lot more in, especially with high field, which is lends itself tremendously to doing sensitive iron mapping. And, and it's very clear that there's certain structures in the brain that have high, high iron deposits. But it seems that in your talk, you, you paint this picture of iron sort of being an indicator uh, of, you know, iron seems to correlate where there's myelin. Um, uh, also, uh, it's essential, but at the same time, too much iron is an indicator of disintegration. Uh, uh, so do you wanna maybe talk a little bit about iron in the brain? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and how do you actually, and also the other question is, uh, how does one, I mean, certainly iron is in the blood, that's a basis of bold contrast, how does one separate cleanly measurements of blood iron versus tissue iron? Yeah, so I, I think that the story of iron in the brain is also a very complex one and, and not, not well understood yet. I, I think one could say that. And, and there are certain, I, I think iron is so interesting because it's really got the two, two faces, basically. One, the positive, you know, the, the good face, and the other one, the negative, the evil face, in the sense that, uh, you need it for, you know, for example, when to produce myelin, to uh, um, uh, how, how do you say for, for enzymes, for example. So it's really something that is fundamental to the physiology. Basically, wouldn't work without iron. Um, on the other hand, we also know that when you have these um, extremely extreme high iron uh, concentrations and deposits. Um, that are not physiologically regulated anymore, then you actually get the effect of that, that it basically builds up kind of radicals. So it really damages the, the, the tissue. So it's, it's a very negative effect. Um, so it's highly regulated in the body, um, that, that there isn't too much and that it's in the right places and so on when, when everything works well. But when it doesn't work well anymore, then it gets dysregulated and then get all, all the trouble. And that's why it's interesting both domains, kind of the natural healthy development, but also in the kind of negative, the poor aging and, and pathologies, for example, neurodegeneration. And there are a lot of neurodegenerative diseases that are somehow correlated, at least with iron, when, when you look into the literature. So it's really got several roles. And um, a lot of the iron is contained in ferritin, but you also have it, for example, in neomelanin as, as another iron-containing uh, uh, pigment or substance. And, and so it kind of also lives in, in kind of different conditions, so to say. And, and it's important to distinguish those. Um, and I think there's really much to learn. And, and there, there, I, I think there's two 
when we get the modeling right, we can partially uh, distinguish it. So we can really learn about these different ion states. And, and we also need to learn about them because the simplistic modeling will not uh, lead, lead to really uh, promi long-term promising results. I think we really need to understand it, um, uh, what, what types of ions, what, what chemical uh, condition it is in. Yeah, and you mentioned right. I mean, there's there's ways of and right. You mentioned neuromelanin, which which I just maybe in the last several years learned about that. You know, it's a very uh, it's another you know strong indicator of I think dopamine or uh, uh, maybe I'm not. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It is. Um, so the, the classic example is, and it's one, one we study as well, is uh, that you find a lot of neuromelanin in, in the substantia nigra. And it's kind of, how, how would you say, um, uh, what, what's the right word? It, it's part of the process of dopamine, kind of one of the products you get out, end products in the end. So it, it, you find it there, it accumulates there, and, and it's scavenges iron. So it contains quite a lot of iron. So, so when you look at these dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra, they actually, they, they contain quite a lot of neuromelanin, highly concentrated, and highly concentrated iron there as well. And, yeah. and I think it's one of the contrasts that's quite well known in, in MI there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's a unique application that could have all kinds of implications for you know, addiction to depression to all kinds. Yeah. You know, those. I mean. So, so that's just at the very beginning of that. Uh, uh, maybe as uh, I realize we're, we're we're almost coming to the end of this, but uh, there's so much to talk about. Obviously, if anyone's listening to this and this is before your talk, listen to your talk, uh, or even check back on it uh, <laughs> at OHBM since. Uh, uh, I did. I did have a question about um, uh, you, know, you make these beautiful maps of iron in the superficial white matter versus iron. Uh, you differentiate between uh, iron in the deep white matter or the sulci versus superficial white matter. Mm -hmm. So, what's what's the um, significance of, of the differences between these maps? And uh, it seems like you tie it in with U, U, U fibers connecting visual areas, and it's like there's a really rich story here. So, so this, this is a really interesting observation and, and uh, we and others have made this when, when you acquire, let's say, susceptibility sensitive images like T2 star weighted images or susceptibility maps, you see these uh, hyper intense stripes just underneath the cortex and it's exactly where you find um, the type of white matter, so-called superficial white matter, very thin uh, stripe of about 500 micrometer thickness that connects, um, for example, it contains the U-fibers that connect two adjacent chiri, basically. The, so they, they form this kind of U-shape. Um, and that's why, why they're called uh, U-fibers. And what is interesting is, uh, so we were looking into this uh, contrast much more closely because we didn't fully understand what's going on there. Why, why are they bright? You know, why do they look different from deep white matter? It's white matter. Shouldn't it look exactly the same? So you start wondering about it. And, and so we looked into it. And, and what, what's quite interesting is that exactly in that area, you find a very high iron concentration, much higher uh, than in the deep white matter, and certainly much higher than in the gray matter, which is right next to it. You know, you go from gray matter into this area, with very high iron concentration, and it kind of goes down to the deep white matter again. And and um, why we find it so important is uh, because when, when you look at it from the angle of 
you're acquiring MRI data and you want to understand the tissue microstructure better, then you want to have a unique marker. And, and this is kind of a unique marker because here you know the myelin, and I didn't say this, but the myelination estimates are the same in deep white matter and the superficial white matter. So now we can kind of distinguish it from deep white matter because it's the part of the white matter that's got the high iron concentration, much higher than the rest. Um, adding to that, um, what we could show is by, by modeling that this measurement, for example, of R2 star is highly related to the iron content in the superficial white matter. So it's kind of an, I would say it's an iron marker for superficial white matter um, iron. And what we could also see with very high resolution, one micrometer high resolution uh, iron maps, we could see that the iron actually mainly lives in the somata of the oligodendrocytes and probably in the fibers. We are currently still looking at this very precisely with electron microscopy, but um, so that means now, you have this link from MRI to iron and you know where the iron is. So that makes it very likely that you actually have something like a fiber density marker, or maybe at least, you know, a fiber maturity marker in a sense, because we also know that iron levels can change with the maturation of, of the fibers in there. And, and now you have a much better understanding, a much better interpretation of these maps. And, and you can use those in vivo and actually plot really beautiful uh, kind of U-fiber superficial white matter maps. And we really understand very little about the U-fibers in humans uh, because they're so hard to, to image. Um, you know, when you look at them post-mortem, then you can't obviously can't do the functional experiment anymore. It's difficult to look at behavior. So doing these classic behavior structural relationship studies is really difficult without a non-invasive mapping technique. Yeah. So we hope this will really help us to, to understand this important system in the brain, the superficial white matter. So the, the U fibers actually so it seem to suggest that you know it's it's areas that are that show you know cort, you know cortical areas that are that are adjacent and connected and and so sort of understanding how they're connected in that way uh, yep. it's amazing also so you know it's like we fill our gaps in our knowledge just with sort of blind spots but then you know with MRI you sort of show that oh you know U fibers and 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 suddenly everyone's like wait yeah that's right we don't really have a deep understanding of of this, this is we have to reconsider this. <laughs> so this is so it's a wonderful sort of iteration that happens that's sort of spurred on by just these empirical uh, um, observations that that come through deeper and deeper use of, of MRI, which is just wonderful. So so just to uh, you know, there's so much more we could talk about, and uh, but um, but but just to finish up. There, there are many areas that you're studying. I mean, you're studying, I, I wanted to talk about a paper with, with aging, uh, uh, you know, learning, Parkinson's disease, all kinds of things. Uh, what, what would you suggest for, you know, MR physicists uh, or, or neuroscientists with some technical bent, uh, what would you suggest would be the most interesting projects? What are the directions uh, that have the most potential benefit in the future um, with MRI, at least, uh, or, or multimodal? Um, hmm, that's a hard, hard question. I, I mean... Um, yeah, it's an open-ended question. I think, it, I, I, in my, in my opinion, really uh, great potential is uh, all the different approaches that really try to approach questions more quantitatively. 
So this could be, so this is now very abstract, but let me explain it, what I mean with this. This could mean, for example, what we discussed right now, to not just do some, you know, shape analysis, and then you don't really know exactly what changes, but do the shape analysis, do the microstructure measurements, and all of that, and put it together, and try to quantify this as much as possible, because that gives you, I think, in, in my opinion, the strongest predictions, which can also most easily fail. And I think that's strong science, yeah. which you can disprove really clearly and easily, and maybe also with other techniques that are not MI, because you've now given other people a biological measurement result and prediction and and they can go at it and and you know critique it and so on and and similarly on the functional side for example i'm i'm quite interested in in these more formal models like neuronal mass models where, where you get stricter and more and more clear predictions which you might then be able to probe with electrophysiology completely different method you know from mri so if you think of, uh, if you ask me at this kind of more abstract level I, I would say yes models approaches that are really trying to put clear numbers to your to your predictions of what you are saying um and and i said it's a bit bit of my taste and it certainly I think it's strongly formed by coming from physics you know where, where you're so used to this to to make these quantitative predictions and and, and then trying to tackle or disprove these models um, and and for me of course I'm fully completely excited about this possibility to look at microstructure now more and more quantitatively and and trying to understand that better. And and there are so I I couldn't even start I wouldn't even know where to begin what you can do with that. Actually, there are so many possibilities um, in terms of studies. Right, and and so related to this question, are there any like when for instance when you compare histology when you look at a histologic sample. Uh, uh, are there are there are there any aspects of the histology that you that still remain un, not understood that MRI might lend insight into? Um, uh, you know, are there oh, any yes. connections yep. made? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, and um, you know, when you think about the classic histology, I, I mean, there's really this big issue that that it's um, you have all the vagaries of staining. Um, it comes out differently depending on maybe who, uh, which uh, who who did it. You know, what lab technician worked on, and all these kind of things. And MRI doesn't have that, right? When it works, it, it really gives you those quantitative values, and and you can compare them. So I think that's a big advantage. It's, it's three dimensional. So I think with histology you often really struggle with the fact that most of them it's 2D and, and it's slice based so the connectivities become really difficult to look at um, so there's actually quite a lot of things um, we could potentially do even better with MI uh, than with, with histology um, especially I mean when you think about the postmortem uh, situation where MI is much easier to perform than in, in the uh, in vivo situation because you don't have movement and so on. You can look at smaller uh, specimens. So I think there's a lot of potential. And, and I think the techniques can help each other. So for example, we've been looking into, um, uh, for example, myelin stains. And, and we all know they look very different depending on whether you use Luxor's Fast Blue or you use MBP and so on. And MI looks also very different whether you 
look at T1, at proton density and so on. And I think they can really help each other so you can understand each contrast better and each component. And we are quite excited about, for example, looking at lipids in, uh, in myelin as one of the contrast drivers in, in MI. And, and maybe they can help us to explain a little bit better where, where this T1 contrast, for example, comes from and, and why it looks like that and why it looks different, for example, in different brain areas. So yeah, that's a lot, lot to do. Yeah, no, that's exciting. That's, that's a great answer because it really does um, paint this picture that there, there really are more parameters to explore with MRI and, and there's, there's in other areas that it's used for you know, histology or whatever is not, is not a perfect science. And, and MRI has a, a potential for not only improving that, but sort of coming up with new insights about things. So. Oh, this is great. Well, uh, I think actually uh, we're, we're at the end of our time, but um, I, I really do appreciate uh, you taking the time to come on and, and you know, uh, uh, chat and, and listen to my, my questions. But uh, <laughs> uh, and, and definitely your work over the years has been uh, pioneering uh, with not only with MRI, uh, not only with functional MRI, with real time. But, but now this whole field, I, I get this real sense that, that the direction that MRI is taking in, in, in this regard is extremely rich and there's tons of opportunity. So I, and I think you're, you're leading the way. So I, I recommend everyone listen to your talk and, uh, and, I, and thanks for coming on. Thank, thank you very much, Peter. I mean, it was a real, real pleasure and a lot of fun to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you.